Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic, and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do. A companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net. If you have suggestions for topics, guests, and other ideas, please send them to info at scientificsense.com and I can be reached at gil at epen.info. Itai Goldstein, who is Professor of Finance and Economics at the Wharton School of the University of, Philadelphia, University of Pennsylvania. He's the Executive Director of the Review of Financial Studies and a Research Associate at the National Bureau of Economic Research. He was a co-founder of the Finance, Group, Finance Theory Group and served as a director of the American Finance Association. Welcome, Itai. Thank you very much. It's, I'm happy to be here. Yeah, thanks for doing this. So we have uh, sort of two major categories of, uh, of subjects to, to, to discuss. Uh, the first one is about stock prices and how they might interact with the decision-making inside the firm. And um, you have, a, I want to start with your paper uh, from 2012 entitled The Real Effects of Financial Markets. Uh, you say a large amount of activity in the financial sector occurs in secondary financial markets where securities are traded among investors without capital flowing to firms. Uh, the stock market is the archetypal example which is most developed economies, uh, which in most developed economies captures a lot of attention and resources. You ask, is the stock market just a sideshow or, or does it affect real economic activity? So what's the answer? Is it a sideshow? Well, that's a very important uh, question. And uh, I believe that uh, you may get uh, different answers from different people. In, in my view, it's not a sideshow. And I believe that both anecdotal uh, evidence and also uh, large-scale empirical evidence uh, shows that uh, it's not just a, a sideshow. People pay a huge amount of uh, attention uh, to, the, to the stock market. And at the end of the day, it affects a lot of decisions. Uh, and through affecting those decisions, it ends up affecting uh, the cash flows of firms, uh, so it ends up affecting the uh, real values of, of firms uh, that it is meant to, to reflect. Yeah, yeah I, I believe in business schools, uh, we still teach that um, market prices are efficient, uh, 
and uh, managers of firms uh, use uh, market prices as a as a, as kind of an information source to make decisions. Um, I'm not exactly sure if that happens <laughs> inside firms, uh, but uh, uh, but you have a slightly different argument here, right? Which is uh, sort of the feedback uh, between financial markets and decision making inside the firm. Yes, uh, exactly. Um, so you know the the so-called uh, feedback effect is that uh, information that is reflected. Uh, in prices uh, through the trading activities of various market participants uh, will end up affecting uh, investment decisions and they may it may affect investment decisions uh, you know the simplest channel is through affecting what managers are doing uh, but it doesn't have to be uh, just managers it can also be other decision makers like banks who are lending money to firms or regulators who are controlling what firms are doing or uh, customers, suppliers, employees. Uh, as long as the stock price reflects some information uh, that was not fully known to them, uh, yeah. it will affect the way they are uh, thinking about things and as a result will affect their decisions and will end up affecting uh, firms' cash flows. Yeah, so any decision maker using set, uh, stock prices from secondary mag markets have to assume that those prices are efficient, right? Otherwise, uh, it's going to give, give them a sort of wrong wrong information. Um, yes, I, I think, uh, you know, when you think about it generally, the answer would be yes. Uh, but of course, the world is a bit more complicated and we have to think about what exactly it means for prices to be efficient. I think that the way uh, they are thinking about it is there is some information, uh, some useful information in prices that they may want to follow. Uh, they also recognize that prices will be noisy to some extent. At the end of the day, uh, as long as there is enough information relative to noise, they will uh, follow, um, in, in some cases, what prices tell them, what prices guide them to do. Um, but they recognize that there is also some noise. And so occasionally, uh, what prices are telling them uh, is not going to be the, the right thing. But, but as long as, on average, uh, there is more information than, than noise, then decision makers in the real side of the economy are likely to to follow uh, the price. Yeah, so so in this paper you say um, you make two points. You say first we argue that a new definition of price efficiency is needed to account for the extent to which prices reflect information that is useful uh, for the efficiency of real decisions. Um, so, so what do you mean by a new definition of price uh, price efficiency in this context? Yes, uh, very good. You know, the traditional definition of uh, price efficiency, the one that uh, many people in uh, finance, uh, in academia, and also in practice have been uh, following uh, for many years, is the idea that an efficient price uh, provides a good uh, projection of uh, the future cash flows uh, of, of the firm. Okay, this is usually how we are uh, trained uh, to think about it. 
the extent to which prices can forecast uh, what uh, future cash flows uh, will be. However, when you take a step back and you wonder, wait a second, why do we care about it uh, so much? Um, you know, if you take the view that the market is not just a sideshow, but rather information in the market will have important effects on investment decisions and, and future cash flows, then the definition of efficiency that you should really uh, focus on, I believe, is the extent to which the information in prices uh, really reveals something new to decision makers and allows them to make more efficient decisions uh, going forward. Let me give you an, an example where these two concepts can be quite different from each other. Uh, suppose that uh, there are two dimensions uh, of information. Uh, one of them, uh, firm managers know very well, and the other one, uh, they don't know very well, and they can actually take some uh, guidance and take some um, new information from uh, prices. Okay. Uh, suppose that what the market is doing is just learning what the manager already knows, and, and this is reflected in prices. If this is the case, then you know, uh, the traditional market efficiency might look uh, very high because prices are doing a fairly good job predicting what's going to happen. Uh, however, if you think about sort of the other concept, the so-called real uh, economic, uh, real uh, price efficiency, uh, then this is going to be pretty low because the only thing that the price is doing is to reflect what is already known uh, and does not provide any new information, any new guidance for investment decisions. Um, on the other hand, when real efficiency will be high, this is when uh, market participants are learning on new dimensions that managers don't know already. Uh, and are reflecting this kind of information and providing potential guidance for real decision makers. Uh, in this case, real efficiency will be high. Mar uh, the traditional market efficiency might not be so high. So those two concepts could be in conflict with each other. The first concept, the traditional market efficiency, is what uh, a lot of people have been looking at for years. The new concept, the real efficiency, is what I think uh, people should focus on more. It's not just about whether markets can predict what will happen, but rather whether they can provide useful new information to advance economic efficiency. Right. And, and what you mean by economic efficiency are decisions inside the firm. And, and so, so in a, in a situation where, when the manager is all-knowing, and market is simply reflecting what the manager already knows, um, you will get the traditional definition of price efficiency. Prices reflect uh, what the insiders know, uh, insiders of the firm um, know, uh, gets reflected in the prices. But, but what you mean by real efficiency is whether such market prices um, actually provide new information to managers to make better decisions? Yes, uh, absolutely. Um, and, and, I, and I will maybe sharpen the point. It doesn't have to be managers who are uh, relying on the information and, and making uh, decisions accordingly. It can be other decision makers 
as well. So, you know, it could be uh, banks who are lending money to firms. It could be regulators who are putting restrictions and changing the way uh, firms behave. It could also be employees, customers, suppliers, and so on. Everyone who is making decisions that are shaping future investments and cash flows of firms uh, and can be guided by prices, uh, everyone like this we care about. And when we think about the real uh, efficiency, we think about the extent to which market prices shape their information and shape their behavior and decisions. Right, right. So uh, you make kind of the point in this paper, and I want to uh, expand on it uh, using another paper. So you say in this paper, incorporating the feedback effect into models of financial markets can explain various market phenomena that otherwise seem puzzling. Um, in 2013 paper, um, trading frenzies and their impact on real investment, you study a model in which a capital provider learns from the price of a firm's security in deciding how much capital to provide for new investment. And this feedback effect from the financial market of investment decision gives rise to trading fences, you say, in which speculators all wish to trade like others, generating large pressure on prices. Uh, so, so what's the mechanism there? Yes. So... You know, this uh, phenomenon of uh, trading frenzies, we, we wrote about it in a paper that was published, uh, as you mentioned, in 2013. And actually, when you look at the news in recent weeks, uh, all of a sudden, it became a very acute uh, phenomenon. Uh, when you think about a, a trading frenzy, uh, what comes to mind when you look at uh, recent weeks are stocks like GameStop and AMC, uh, and, and others as well who have been subject to such a uh, trading uh, trading uh, frenzy. Uh, so th this has become uh, something uh, that, that I think is uh, uh, very uh, timely, uh, very relevant uh, today. When I think about a trading frenzy, you know, I, I think about a situation where uh, speculators, uh, uh, traders in the financial market, uh, rush to trade in the same direction uh, a given asset. So all of a sudden, everyone wants to buy uh, GameStop. Uh, all of a sudden, everyone wants to buy uh, AMC. And, and you have to wonder what causes uh, such a, a trading frenzy to, to arise. Uh, before that, I will say, you know, if you take a step back and, and think about sort of the way financial markets usually work, uh, on, on, on uh, sort of regular uh, circumstances is that uh, such trading frenzies are not so easy to, uh, to form. Why? Because market prices would uh, cause the opposite, right? If everyone is buying a stock, uh, the price of the stock is going to rise, and this makes it more worthwhile for others to sell the stock. So you have these sort of traditional natural breaks in financial market uh, that prevent uh, such uh, frenzies from occurring on, on a very frequent uh, basis. Uh, but when you see a frenzy like this, you wonder, okay, what, what happened? Why is it that those natural breaks are not in action? And uh, when everyone buys, everyone else also want to buy rather than selling, which would be the uh, sort of natural way of things. Uh, and, you know, we think, uh, and we wrote a model uh, uh, about this, and we supported it with some uh, casual uh, evidence, 
and I think it actually uh, uh, came to, to, to life uh, in these recent uh, events. We think that this so-called feedback effect from uh, the financial market to real uh, decisions, to capital raising and investment and so on, uh, we think that this actually puts fuel uh, in uh, the uh, trading frenzy and allows the trading frenzy to uh, form in, in the first place. And, and how does this uh, work? Uh, suppose that everyone is buying the stock. Now the price of the stock starts going up. Uh, capital providers uh, who are providing capital to the firm uh, will look at it and say, okay, let's provide more capital to the firm. The firm is now doing better because of this. And this justifies the initial increase in uh, the price of the stock, giving fuel to the frenzy, uh, bringing more people in, and uh, others want to buy as well. And then you have this feedback loop whereby more uh, buying of the stock increases its price, allows more capital raising, more investment, makes the firm better off, feeds back to the stock price, justifying the initial increase in the stock price, and, and so on. You know, it, it, it's a curious detail that when you look at a stock like AMC in recent weeks, something very similar to this has happened. Uh, there was a trading frenzy, stock price went up, AMC tapped into the market, raising more and more uh, capital. This was actually the thing that uh, kind of saved it from, uh, from bankruptcy. But in, in, some, in some sense, uh, it, uh, it assumes that the firm is facing a capital constraint or firm is sitting on projects it couldn't fund. Um, otherwise, uh, positive NPV projects it couldn't fund otherwise, and and the rise in stock price suddenly allows them to fund those projects. Uh, I mean, the the capital provider um, won't be naive like that, right? <laughs> I mean, I'm just trying to get to the why this mechanism exists. Yes, uh, it's a it's a very good uh, question. You're absolutely right. Uh, you know, when I describe this mechanism now as a trading frenzy on the buy side, people buying the stock, price goes up, capital provider takes a cue from this and, uh, you know, funds the firm some more, uh, making the firm better off, feeding back into the, the stock price. It does build on the idea that there is uh, some uh, capital constraint, the firm was not able to invest uh, as much as it, it wanted. Um, and, and, you know, if I go back to the example of, of AMC uh, in, in recent weeks, I think you can see the mapping. Uh, AMC yeah. suffered uh, a negative shock because of the pandemic. Uh, all of a sudden, the old model of movies, uh, movie theaters is under attack. It's not clear if this is going to continue or not. Certainly in the short run, people don't want to go to movie theaters. People start wondering whether this will even come back. So there is a big fundamental uh, challenge, I would say, to, to, uh, to AMC. AMC is having a, a hard time paying back uh, the debt, and uh, you, you're starting to think they may be on the verge of, of bankruptcy. And, and all of a sudden, the stock price starts rising, and this lifts some of the capital constraint because given the high stock price, uh, now all of a sudden people are willing uh, to fund uh, AMC in, in more attractive uh, terms. And you're asking a very good question, uh, are the capital providers uh, naive? Uh, 
you know, one possibility is yes, maybe they are naive. Maybe <laughs> maybe they are looking at the at the stock price, not fully understanding what's what's going on, and uh, as a result, injecting more capital to the firm based on this inflated uh, stock price. And another possibility, which is more subtle, and is, is something that I uh, emphasized in some of my of my research, is you know maybe they're not so naive maybe what they are doing is uh, looking at the stock price as a source of information updating based on the on the stock price and making decisions based on the stock price and as i told you in the beginning you know they are taking into account the possibility that the stock price contains some information uh, and also taking into account the possibility that the stock price is noisy but they are updating and just like in uh, we do in Bayesian uh, updating uh, when we take some information and some noise and we put it together in the mixer and we see what comes out. So sometimes we make decisions um, that end up being wrong, but we will still updating uh, rationally. Okay, so I, I yeah. think the jury is sort of out, uh, you know, and maybe the jury is not uh, going to come in for, for, for a long time on whether uh, those decisions are made on a rational basis or on a Bayesian noisy uh, basis. I think it could be some combination of, of the two. Yeah, I can see, and I think you made this point in, on another paper. Uh, I can see this on the short side uh, because it's a reinforcing effect. So if you, if you have a you know, frenzy, trading frenzy on the short side, uh, stock price goes down, and if if your argument is right that it reduces cash flow to the firm, it, it becomes self reinforcing to the, um, you know, to, to the to the firm, uh, and it gets into this uh, downward spiral, right? Yeah. Th that that I can I can see really clearly. On the long side, I I find it difficult to 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 see why capital providers would suddenly uh, suddenly rush in and and imagine that the firm has, you know, so many positive NPV projects just lying around, uh, and then the market just realized it, so that I'm going to go fund it. Uh, I, I guess it happens, but I find it more difficult to, to internalize. Yeah, yes. Um, you know, I, I can certainly understand what, what you are saying, and, and you're right that in most of my writings on the topic, I actually emphasize the sort of short side on, on this. And, and you're also right that for the short side, you don't need to assume that the firm is financially constrained and the mechanism actually works more naturally uh, there. Um, yeah. Because what's going on, on on the short side is if the stock price goes down, then even if the firm is not financially constrained, managers uh, start updating, you know, maybe things are not going so well and they start canceling uh, investments and this uh, sort of feeds back into the stock and justifies uh, the decrease in price uh, that was caused by the, the short selling. You're, you're absolutely right. I think for the long side, you need this additional layer of the firm being uh, financially uh, constrained. Uh, and then the increase in stock price relaxes this constraint and, and brings in uh, capital providers and, and this sort of puts fuel in, in the fire. So, so you, you're right that uh, to some extent the, the short side is uh, perhaps more natural than, than the long side. 
Um, but but you know, as as I said, I I actually uh, when I look at what happened in recent weeks with AMC, uh, you know, American Airlines actually, which is a pretty big uh, firm, obviously also had a similar uh, episode uh, where there was not as extreme a frenzy as GameStop or uh, AMC, but a, a little bit of an uptick in stock price because of such uh, trading, and they were actually able to raise capital in very uh, uh, favorable terms because of this. So, so when you see what happened in in recent weeks, uh, you actually start believing that that some of it is is uh, actually likely. Uh, you know, uh, stock prices going up, and you would say capital providers should not follow it and should not inject new capital into the firm because of this. But but they do, and and uh, yeah. so so I think there is some uh, truth to it on the long side as as well. So, so am I understanding this correctly, Taito? So, the what do you mean by trading frenzy? Uh, is it that the traders uh, are noise, noise, noise traders? They they're not really trading on any fundamentals, and arbitrarily, let's think about the long side. Arbitrarily pushes up the the value of the stock, and that gives. Uh, possibly wrong information to capital providers. They start pumping more money to the firm and assuming the firm had a capital constraint, they start using that 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 funding and, and the firm gets better from a from a cash flow and valuation perspective. So it's self-reinforcing. So but but the trading frenzy as you call it, that is that is really noise traders. They're not doing anything fundamental, right? Um to some extent, although I will say it's a bit more subtle uh, than, than that, um, they're, they're not pure noise traders. You know, when we think about pure noise traders, these are people who, uh, as you say, kind of trade completely on noise. Uh, maybe they have some liquidity reason to, to trade, some hedging uh, constraint or something like that. But what they do has no informational content at all. Uh, when I think here about this uh, trading uh, frenzy, both in the model that we wrote and in those events that, that I now mentioned to you, I, I don't think about it as being completely noise. I just think, you know, those are people who are hurting on a common source of information that they all follow, uh, which might have some informational content, but also has some, some noise in it. And they might not follow more precise private sources of information that they otherwise would have. Yeah, so um, so uh, I, I haven't really studied AMC, um, but, you know, uh, I, I looked at GameStop recently. Um, it has to be that if the stock is going up, it has to be that if they're fundamental traders, if information is suddenly getting reflected in the prices, it has to be that that information was missing before, right? You know, uh, it's not, you know, there is no regime change uh, in GameStop's business. There is no competitive entry. There is no product innovation. There is no technology. There is nothing in the market. And, and suddenly the stock takes off. Uh, has to be either that the stock price was wrong before or it is some sort of noise. Am I, am I understanding it correctly or not? Um, I think that the, the truth is not so black and white as you, as you put it. Uh, I can certainly see where you, you're coming from. 
but I think it is not so black and white as, as you put it. You know, when you look at financial markets and how trading evolves uh, over time, how prices are updated uh, over time, uh, it's not really the case that things are uh, wrong and then they're uh, all of a sudden uh, updated. Things are much more uh, gradual and information flows in different channels and over time and people take times to absorb it and update and, and trade on it. Um, so so the, the way I would uh, think about it, if I want to think about, uh, say, GameStop or uh, AMC is, um, you know, there was a price that was reflecting uh, some uh, fundamentals. Uh, and all of a sudden, you start seeing those uh, announcements uh, being posted on uh, message boards and, and so on. And uh, some people follow it. And what I think happened here is, you know, maybe there is a, a grain of information in it. Actually, if you go back to uh, uh, sort of the um, interviews with uh, some of the traders who took part in GameStop, you know, they say that they believed, uh, and, and some of them will tell you they truly uh, believed that um, it was under undervalued. Uh, that a, a lot of these so-called uh, so Wall Street uh, traders, uh, institutional uh, traders, that they underestimated uh, the long-term potential of GameStop and, and AMC. And they thought that there was actually some truth in, in the idea that those are undervalued and that they were a good buy opportunity. And then you see those messages being uh, exchanged uh, on the internet in Reddit and, and so on. And people follow it and they start trading on it. Um, now, at some points, I think it kind of got out of control. You know, I'm not going to tell you that the prices that uh, GameStop and AMC had at the peak were justified. I certainly don't think they were. Uh, but it could be that they were undervalued before and maybe there was some correction to be made. But I think the frenzy is that people are just jumping on it, uh, maybe a lot more than they should, and then you see a huge uh, overshooting uh, because of that. So, so I think the reality of it, and cer certainly a lot of studies in financial markets, both theoretically and empirically, uh, basically tells us that you know it's it's subtle. Um, there is some updating of, of information. But I think what happened in this frenzy is that some updating of information led to sort of overreaction and everyone sort of is trying to jump on it at, at the same time. Yeah, it, it is really interesting. Uh, so um, so if, there is, if there is a sort of, let's say, underpricing of a stock, the market recognizes the underpricing um, and and people come in. Uh, there's sort of a discontinuity in in prices, and uh, prices take off and it overshoots. Uh, but this mechanism that you are suggesting in, in the in the in the few papers is that when prices take off, it has a positive effect on the firm, um, not necessarily just the manager's ability to make better decisions, but rather in this case, in AMC's case. Uh, maybe new capital coming in, right? Yes. And so, 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 do you need some sort of a, a startup process like that? Meaning, there has to be some, you know, some significant underpricing 
uh, in the stock and you know it's like starting a car <laughs> you know uh, you start the car and start driving it and you know you thought it was 30 miles per hour and then you go to 100 200 miles per hour so mm-hmm. so do you need some sort of discontinuity like that for this mechanism to work um I, I think it certainly helps. Um, I don't know that you absolutely uh, need it. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I could imagine a trading frenzy like this could occur even if you don't have an underpricing to start with. But, but I think that it certainly helps. I certainly think that those uh, sort of messaging boards, the, the Reddit uh, forum, you know, when, when they ignited it and, and got the thing going, I, I certainly think it helped that they could say, uh, look, you have a stock like GameStop. It's a well-known brand name. Uh, it's been around for so long. Uh, people are using it to buy video games, to give gifts. And uh, even though they don't go to the malls, to the physical stores anymore, they can still do it uh, online. And now they are getting into the e-commerce uh, space, so they have room to grow. So they could tell all these stories of what's missing in the price and then use that as a motivation to get people excited and start buying the stock. I certainly think that that helps. Uh, so so I, I would say probably yes. Uh, starting from uh, a position where you're slightly underpriced and you have a story to tell of why you're underpriced certainly helps to ignite that mm. and, and get the uh, increase in, in price uh, going. Otherwise, I, I think you're right that it would be more difficult to do it. Yeah, yeah. I, I want to touch on another paper, Feedback Effects, Asymmetric Trading and, li- and the Limits to Arbitrage. Um, so this feedback effect that we were discussing, uh, the, the private information um, going into real decisions, you say this feedback effect has an asymmetric effect on trading behavior. It increases the profitability of buying on good news. Uh, and, and the converse is true to it uh, reduces the profitability of selling on bad news. So, so what's the implication of that? Yes. Yeah, so... You know, the setting here is, I think, something closer to what you had in mind uh, when you told me uh, a few minutes ago that uh, you have a hard time seeing a frenzy going on on the long side, uh, yeah. but y- you can more easily see it going on in on, on the downside, on, on the sell side. Um, and basically what we are thinking of here is uh, not a situation where a firm is financially constrained. Okay, and this is why I'm saying it relates more to, to what you, you had in mind. Yeah. Uh, but rather think about a manager uh, making a decision um, and uh, updating a little bit based on the price when making this uh, decision. I think a good setting to, to have in mind is an acquisition. And we give a couple of examples uh, in the paper. You know, one yeah. is a famous case where Coca-Cola was trying to acquire a Quaker Oats Bay, Bay, back in uh, 2000, uh, announcing this acquisition. And then the market is essentially telling them, look, it's not a good idea. Uh, Don't do it because the stock price immediately declines after they do it. And then following the reaction of the market, they go back to the drawing board and and after a few days say, okay, you know what? We changed our mind. We, we We are not going to do it. So, so the idea here is that you know managers are announcing they're going they're going to do something, the market reacts, 
and then managers have an opportunity uh, after afterwards after the market reaction uh, to go back and, and change and in this case because they announced an acquisition and the market didn't like it they went back and said okay we're canceling the acquisition and you know there is there are anecdotes uh, uh, along these lines and there are also a lot of large scale empirical evidence to suggest that this kind of reaction to uh, to the market uh, exists so so the once you take this uh, kind of dynamics and you think about the implication you you realize that uh, speculators who trade on negative information might not get their rewards as much as speculators who trade on positive information uh, put yourself in in the shoes of a speculator who watched that acquisition announcement that i just mentioned and thought it was a very bad idea uh, so they are selling the stock yeah. However, and, and they're basically saying, okay, I'm going to sell the stock because I think this acquisition is terrible and my reward will be that the stock price will decline and I will eventually uh, make a profit on my uh, position. But now if managers come back after you sold the stock, if managers come back and cancel the action that was supposed to uh, get the stock price down, then you as a speculator who sold the stock you're left without an opportunity to actually make a profit. So right. the idea is if you have speculators who identify that there is a problem in what the firm is doing and they take a short position as a result, but then the firm is correcting uh, this action, uh, then it kind of uh, destroys the profit opportunity uh, that they had. So yeah. the idea is, you know, if you have negative information and you trade on it and it's reflected in prices, the opportunity to make a profit on this negative information might be taken away from you. Uh, the same thing doesn't happen in this setting uh, on positive information uh, and on buying, because, you know, if you notice that a firm uh, is making an acquisition and you thought, wow, this is really a great idea, I'm going to buy the stock then the firm is going to double down you know they said we're going to do an acquisition the market cheers so they will continue to do the acquisition maybe they will do another acquisition um, yeah. and and then uh trading on positive information is going to be rewarded because the firm will take an action that will uh, double down on the initial action but trading on negative information is not only not rewarded but in some sense might uh, be penalized because you are trading on uh, the idea that the firm is doing something bad the firm looks at it says okay it's bad let's not do it and then you can no longer make a profit on what you thought was uh, was uh, negative information so the idea here yeah. is you know the, the market in those situations rewards positive information and doesn't reward negative information the implication is that negative information might not get into the stock price as much as we could hope. Yeah, that, that's very interesting. So, so you conclude here that bad news is incorporated more slowly into prices than good news. Yeah. Uh, if this is systematically true, uh, then this will lead to uh, overinvestment. Uh, that makes intuitive sense. Do we have empirical evidence this is actually true? You know, this is a, a very interesting uh, question. Uh, in general, you know, we cite in the paper a few uh, existing studies in, in finance that uh, basically point out that bad news, uh, so-called, travels uh, slowly. Um, 
However, I, I want to point out that you know, it might be difficult to find the full extent of empirical evidence behind it because a lot of it is really counterfactual, okay? Uh, yeah. If you think about it, uh, then a lot of the bad news um, might not even come to, to existence uh, because of this, right? If people know that when they have bad news, they shouldn't trade on it, um, then um, they're not going to produce this kind of information. They're not going to try trade on it. It's not going to be reflected in prices. Um, and, and so I think there is a lot that we might not even be seeing. We, we can sort of analyze it based on logic. You know, a lot, a lot of what we do in finance theory, we say, okay, these are sort of logical ingredients behind how we think people behave and, and market work. Um, we put them together and we get this conclusion. Um, so, so I think this is sort of a logical extension of a lot of these uh, ingredients, um, but I think a lot of it will, is, is actually difficult to see in, in actual market dynamics. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Uh, you have a recent paper, uh, The Real Effects of Modern Information Technologies. Uh, you say using the staggered implementation of the Edgar system from 93 to 96 as a shock to information dissemination technologies we examine the potential benefits and costs of modern information technologies on the real economy. Uh, so, so what do you find from this data? <clears throat> yes. Um, so, you know, maybe I should first take a step back and, and say a lot of my work is always kind of on the delicate tension between theory and um, empirical evidence. Uh, and I have been motivated uh, a lot, uh, as, as I mentioned, by sort of developing theories that push the logical line of, you know, these ingredients and what they could mean for how traders behave and uh, how market prices are, are formed. But, but I, I also think it is quite important to uh, sort of try when we can and find empirical evidence um, to the extent that this kind of feedback effect from uh, traders' behavior and market information to, to real investment, the extent to which uh, they, they are there. And over the years, I've done a number of empirical papers along these lines. The one that you mentioned is uh, the, most, uh, the most recent one. And, and basically what we are trying to, to understand here, suppose that firms are uh, forced to reveal more information. What is this going to do uh, to uh, the way that uh, speculators, traders are trading on information and to the ability of uh, firms to learn from uh, market uh, information? Um, and this Edgar uh, experiment uh, that you referred to uh, is, is, is a very uh, powerful uh, tool, I, I found, uh, because uh, basically, this is, you know, back in the 90s, uh, the SEC came uh, to firms and said, okay, from now on, you have to provide uh, this information uh, to be widely uh, available, um, and uh, it has to be disseminated very uh, effectively. Uh, beforehand, when firms uh, produced their financial uh, statements, you know, it would be uh, available in some SEC office, you would have to come there and get the hard copy and clearly a lot of people will be failed from uh, from doing that uh, and all of a sudden when this edgar uh, was rolled in 
uh, the SEC said, okay, we are now going to put it uh, on the internet and it's going to be disseminated very uh, efficiently to the to the wide public. Okay, so, so you basically have a shock to information technology. All of a sudden, the firm reveals a lot more to, to, uh, to investors. And, and the nice thing about it was that it was done on a staggered basis. Okay, so they basically did it over a period of three years or so, and they split firms into 10 groups. And they said the first group is going to do it now. The next group is going to do it in three months. The, the following group is going to do it three months after that and, and so on. So within three years, they basically covered all of them. But it took three years and you have this staggered implementation and you can basically look uh, how things were affected for the first group um, and then for the second group and then for the third group and so on. And, and you sort of have this uh, natural uh, control and treatment groups uh, all the time. Um, and, and one of the key questions, uh, you know, going back to what I told you before about sort of the distinction between the traditional market efficiency and what I think of as more important, the so-called real efficiency, is we can now ask, okay, now that uh, the firm is revealing more of its information, um, yes, market efficiency should go up, right? Because this information is widely available, so prices can aggregate this information uh, very clearly, and there will be a stronger connection between market prices and sort of uh, future uh, firm uh, cash flows. But what is most subtle is now that the firm is revealing all of its information, maybe the most sophisticated traders out there are going to lose their informational edge and then they will not provide as much uh, new information to the firm as as they did before. Um, and, and we see evidence uh, for that uh, in, in the sense that now that this information is aggregated very quickly in market prices, you see that some of the most sophisticated traders are pulling out of the market and the sensitivity of firm investment to market prices is actually uh, declining. So this is, in my mind, evidence that, you know, even if market efficiency has gone up, this so-called real efficiency, the ability of the market to provide new information to firms is actually uh, going down. It, um, aren't you assuming, though, that disclosures provide sort of perfect information? Um, is it is it uh, is it the information content or it's the breadth uh, breadth of the market that has access to that information? Yes, um, you know it doesn't have to be that uh, the information is perfect uh, in in any way. Um, I think uh, the information uh, again, as as I mentioned before, every piece of information, no matter where it's coming from is going to have, I think, some informational content and some noise content. And people looking at it and processing it will have to uh, take into account, uh, you know, what weight there is on information, what weight there is on noise, and sort of update accordingly and make decisions uh, accordingly, assuming that, uh, assuming that they are uh, rational. So, so I think the idea here is that the firm is providing all this information uh, out there, and people are now going to, to follow it. And I think what happens as a result of it is, you know, those sophisticated traders who were already out there uh, producing information, learning from the firm, uh, putting all this in the mix and, and trading, you know, they are now going to take a step back. 
uh, it is, I think, what, what this is doing is it brings in uh, all these less sophisticated uh, traders who otherwise would not uh, get all this information. Now they feel more comfortable trading in the financial market and they maybe uh, uh, now have a stronger presence overall in what market prices will, uh, will reveal. So, so in the paper, you say uh, there's a trade-off between improved equity financing, um, presumably that is because you have, you have better information, um, and reduced managerial learning. Uh, that's because of feedback we talked about is sort of dampened uh, because uh, the, the more sophisticated users as, as you, or traders, as you put it, have less incentives to, to invest into um, into uh, information, but information is broadly available. Um, and so you're concluding here that uh, the, our evidence suggests that the former effect, which is improved equity financing due to better information dissemination, dominates in value firms, while the latter effect, which is reduced managerial learning, dominates in high growth firms. Uh, that's because the information is more important for the high growth firms. Yes. The information learning. Yes, rather. exactly. So, you know, for the value firms, which are more traditional and rely more on assets uh, in place, you know, for them, the fact that there is all this uh, information now coming from the firm and widely available in the market, uh, this brings in a lot of the investors that otherwise would uh, stay stay away. Uh, so now there is greater liquidity and the firm can raise equity more easily uh, because of that. Um, however, for the high growth firms, we think this is where learning from the market can be particularly uh, important. You know, those are the high growth firms that are sort of making uh, a lot of new in investments and uh, they might want to take some cues from the market on whether what they're doing is good or not. Uh, for them, the fact that now the market is populated by more uh, unsophisticated uh, investors and the fact that some of the more sophisticated investors have taken a step back and are not as engaged as before, this implies that there will be less uh, sort of new uh, information coming into, into the market and reduces the ability of the firm to learn uh, from the price. Mm. Uh, we will take a quick break, uh, Itai. When we come back, we'll talk about the, another bucket of ideas, uh, which is related to the financial markets, the financial crises, and the general fragility of the financial markets. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. This is a Scientific Sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com. So we'll be back, uh, Itai. We, we were talking about uh, sort of the feedback loop uh, between financial markets and real markets uh, where uh, managers inside the firm, capital providers, regulators, 
or use market prices as a proxy um, for decision choices, uh, not a proxy, but market prices uh, as information uh, for decisions. And that feedback um, has a lot of effects uh, on both the prices as well as the decisions the managers make. Uh, you have another set of papers uh, that are somewhat related, but but in a different area. So I want to start with the 2013 paper, Empirical Literature on Financial Crises, Fundamentals versus Panic. Yeah, you say the process of financial globalization has given rise to an increase in the frequency of financial crises. Uh, with that, uh, there has also been a surge in research about financial crises. And one of the key questions in this area is whether crises are triggered by fundamentals or come as a result of panic. Uh, so, so, so what are you finding from, from data here? Yes. Um, you know, the issue of financial fragility and financial crisis has always uh, fascinated uh, me. Uh, since I was a PhD uh, student, I, I uh, finished my PhD in 2001. And in those days, this was sort of the aftermath of the Asian crisis. So when I was a PhD student and developing my dissertation, um, these were the, the days of the Asian Asian crisis, and and basically what you what you saw was uh, you know you have these economies in Asia uh, doing very well and, and all of a sudden collapsing uh, overnight uh, pretty much uh, because of issues with uh, the financial system and with uh, the currency and and the interlinkages uh, between the two. And, and one of the things that uh, was really uh, intriguing to me is the extent to which this can all be based on fundamentals. Uh, and fundamentals mean, you know, there were problems in their uh, economies, the investments they made, um, and all these were just not good. Or yeah. maybe there was also an element of uh, panic. Um, and what I mean by panic is, uh, you know, it kind of becomes a self-fulfilling uh, belief. Uh, investors uh, think there is a problem. They start taking their money out of banks, out of the economy. And um, because investors think that other investors are going to do it, they do it as well. And then the whole thing collapses just because of uh, sort of this uh, self-fulfilling belief. So this is what I would uh, think of as, as panic. Um, and and the, the way I'm thinking about it uh, now, after years of, of uh, research, uh, both theoretically and, and empirically, is that um, you know it, it is a combination uh, of of the two, uh, to to the extent that you have some uh, fundamental uh, trigger, uh, yeah. but this fundamental trigger is then amplified by uh, panic. Uh, which means basically that in, in many of these uh, episodes, um, and you know, there is some parallel, I, th I think, to what we talked about before the break in the other research topic. Um, th there is sort of um, a, a fundamental uh, element, uh, but then the overall outcome ends up being worse uh, than really the fundamental itself uh, justifies. 
Okay, so so many a lot of the empirical uh, studies would uh, basically suggest, yeah, you know, we can trace uh, failures to to fundamentals. So if you go and and do sort of a careful empirical analysis, you can typically trace the failure of a bank or the failure of a country. You can typically trace it to some fundamentals, uh, but but you would uh, typically find that there was some uh, amplification that uh, you know it's not it, it it shouldn't have been as as bad uh, if it was just fundamentals alone. So the endogenous reaction of investors uh, tends to to make things worse. Yeah. So um, I guess the, the the that part is difficult to tease out sometimes, right? So the I guess the research, uh, at least from an empirical perspective, focused on uh, sort of teasing out you know, what triggered the crisis. And uh, typically it's some sort of declining fundamentals that triggers the crisis. And if I understand this correctly, uh, Itai, you're arguing that, yes, that is true, but the outcomes are very much driven by sort of panic, um, a panic of investors. Um, and we're talking about here, um, debt markets, banking, and those toys, those types of things. So. It's sort of like the run on the bank uh, type uh, issue, right? Yes, exactly. And you're absolutely right that empirically, it is difficult uh, to tease out the panic uh, component. And this is something that I was trying to do in, in a few uh, empirical uh, papers. And, you know, one setting where I found it uh, particularly um, useful for this kind of empirical uh, testing is, is the setting of, of mutual funds. Um, yeah. what, what is nice about mutual funds is that you have a whole variety of them, you have a, a huge cost section, and they invest in different things. And, and you have a lot of uh, good data, um, what they invest in, what is their investor base uh, like. And you also have uh, in, in many cases, high-frequency data. So, uh, you know, in the most recent paper, we, we look at uh, sort of daily inflows and, and outflows. Um, yeah. and, and, and basically what you see when you look at uh, mutual funds is um, you have the fundamental element. So typically when you think about when investors are going to take their money out of a mutual fund, it is typically when fundamentals are not so good. So you see a fund sort of deteriorating on performance. Investors are going to uh, take their money out uh, more uh, quickly. Uh, but it's not just the, the fundamental. Uh, another thing that uh, we found repeatedly in, in different uh, papers is that uh, when the fund is holding more illiquid assets, uh, the response of investors to fundamentals is going to be amplified. So basically, yeah. when you look at the sensitivity of investor outflows to the performance of the fund, this sensitivity uh, gets uh, much stronger when the fund is holding more illiquid assets. And this is where I think the panic sets in. So when you put all the controls in place and so on, uh, why would investors react more strongly to past performance when the uh, assets are more illiquid? This is uh, just because they fear that when the assets are more illiquid, uh, 
if other investors are going to come in and take their money out, then uh, their position is going to be uh, deteriorating and their uh, value of holding in the fund is going to go down. So they better do it before others. Okay, so, so basically, if you, if you go back to think about sort of this bank run mechanism, what, what is a bank run mechanism? A bank run mechanism is I want to take my money out of the bank because I think that others are going to do it. And if others are going to do it, I better do it before them. Okay, you see those pictures from 100 years ago. Uh, you know, thousands of people are standing in the street in front of a bank waiting to take their money out. Why are they all in the street at the same time? Because they think, you know, if others are going to take their money out of the bank, the bank is going to go bankrupt. So I want to be there before the next guy. I want to be the first in line. Okay, same thing you can say about uh, a mutual fund, even though it's not as extreme as it used to be 100 years ago with uh, banks. Uh, but, but this mechanism is still there. If the fund is holding these illiquid assets and other investors are taking their money out, then uh, the costs of liquidating the assets and paying them are going to be imposed on me. So basically, I want to go and take my money out uh, before I think others are, are going to do it. So, so in other yeah. words, uh, interacting the fundamental with uh, the illiquidity of the assets gives us this additional layer by which investors react to performance more strongly when they think that they are going to be hurt more by the behavior of others. Right, right. Do you see um, any policy implications here, Itai, from a Federal Reserve perspective? Yes, uh, absolutely. Um, you know, uh, one of the... Uh, I would say most successful uh, policies uh, that has been done in the history of, of banking is deposit insurance. Um, yeah. You know, uh, back in the days, uh, the uh, Fed realized, nowadays it's obviously the FDIC who is doing the deposit insurance, uh, they, they realized, you know, it's really a vicious force here. Uh, investors, depositors thinking, Others are going to take their money out. They are going to, they, they rush to take their money out before others. And, you know, it can really come out of nowhere and uh, blow up the, the bank. So what we are going to do is put in place this deposit insurance, basically say, uh, look, um, if, um, um, if the bank goes out of business, you will be insured up to a certain amount. And really this did... Uh, I would say miracles in terms of coming down the, the banking industry and you see much lower fragility uh, after that. Um, however, deposit insurance also has its downsides, right? Uh, many people have blamed uh, deposit insurance for uh, encouraging banks to take too much risk, the so-called moral hazard uh, problem. So it's really about sort of finding the balance, how much, um, deposit insurance you want to put in so that you reduce this element of panic. Um, but at the same time, you know, it, it doesn't cost you too much because at the end of the day, if you have to pay it, it will cost you a lot. And also uh, that you don't uh, distort banks' decisions uh, too much. So deposit insurance is, is one uh, uh, policy that was enacted successfully in banks, but you want to obviously think about how much, how much you, you want to you do it. Uh, and another policy, um, which you know, for banks was kind of put on top of deposit insurance, 
and nowadays is being put in in mutual funds as you know mutual funds don't have uh, this kind of, of insurance uh, this other policy is to basically tell uh, banks and and mutual funds uh, look you, you have to hold uh, a certain portion of your assets uh, in liquid uh, um, assets okay so you can't you know, if you're a, a bank or a mutual fund, you can't take money from investors, tell them, look, you can come and take your money out whenever you want. And then you go and put this money uh, in extremely uh, illiquid uh, assets because this is uh, a recipe for, for disaster. So uh, what banks are being told is, you know, they have to hold a certain amount of uh, liquid assets. Mutual funds nowadays are also being told, you know, you have to watch your liquidity. You can't uh, hold everything uh, illiquid. Uh, so, so putting uh, some sort of assets in a liquid bin uh, is is also an, an important uh, policy implication. Something else that emerged sort of recently, when you think about um, mutual funds, is uh, to think about, uh, you know, what investors are getting in case they take their money out. As I mentioned, the, the mechanism of a run is, you know, if I think others are going to take their money out, then I want to do it before them. So one way to fight that is to say, uh, look, um, if you're taking your money out at a time when many other people are taking their money out, there will be some penalty. Okay, nowadays, many mutual funds, not yet in the US, but in other parts of the world, many mutual funds are doing that. It's called swing pricing. Um, the, the price of what you can get out of the mutual fund is going to swing uh, based on how many people are coming in any uh, given day. And, and what this is doing, and there is some evidence uh, from uh, the UK that, that, it's, uh, that it's working, um, what this is doing is investors will now know, okay, you know, maybe I don't want to go when everyone else is, is going because there will be a penalty. I might actually be better off uh, uh, waiting. So it does actually reduce the, the fragility of funds to, to some extent. So, so there is a sort of myriad of, of policies. You know, you can think about insurance. You can think about uh, telling them to hold liquidity. You can think about changing the structure by which they are getting paid when they take their money out. And all these have been tried and are being uh, discussed to, to various degrees in banks and in mutual funds. Yeah. Uh, I was wondering also from a tactical perspective, uh, Itai, so uh, lack of liquidity in this case, uh, in, in the case of the mutual funds, uh, does it mean that they're holding assets that are very low volume, they cannot actually liquidate those assets? But in a, in a discontinuity, if the, if the value of the assets of a, of a liquid and then illiquid assets are not changing um, dramatically differently, then I wonder if there is sort of some sort of tactical policy that the Fed can step in and buy out that, those illiquid assets. And, uh, and actually, they can they can time it to some extent, make some money for taxpayers. Yes, uh, that that is that is absolutely true, and and that is also something that has been done um, to various degrees across uh, episodes. Uh, basically, thinking about the the Fed as kind of a buyer of of last resort. Um, yeah, I, I I would say that. Um, 
you know, the, the fa- so, so perhaps the, the most recent episode of uh, sort of financial fragility happened about a year ago uh, with um, uh, corporate bond markets uh, in, in the US, you know, when the COVID yeah. news uh, started to trickle in and uh, people thought, you know, it's going to be very bad for uh, the economy and there might be some financial uh, trouble down the road. Um, you saw major stress happening in corporate bond uh, markets, yields uh, spiking, so prices uh, going down. And, uh, you know, following what, what I said before, you did see massive outflows from uh, corporate bond mutual funds. And this is something that I have been uh, describing and studying empirically in, in a recent in a recent paper, um, and I think for a couple of weeks there it looked like there is going to be a major meltdown in corporate bond uh, mutual funds and in corporate bond uh, markets uh, as a whole. Uh, the the magnitude of outflows that they saw was really uh, unprecedented. Um, and you know when we analyze these events and how things unfolded. Uh, we think eventually you kind of see that it uh, come down and outflows weekend and over time you started seeing uh, more and more uh, inflows. And we think that the thing that really uh, did the trick here was the Fed coming in and, and saying, you know, they did it in two batches. Uh, they did it last year on March 23rd and then on April 9th, basically saying that they are going to uh, step in and uh, buy a, a lot of uh, corporate bonds, okay? And, and this is something that the Fed uh, has never done uh, before. You know, we, we talk about what the Fed did in uh, the crisis of 2008, 2009. Uh, the Fed bought a lot of assets, uh, so-called quantitative easing. But what the Fed bought uh, back then was uh, treasuries and mortgage-backed securities. The Fed didn't buy corporate bonds. And all of a sudden, in March of 2020, COVID comes, stress in the corporate bond markets, outflows from uh, uh, mutual funds holding corporate bonds. All of a sudden, the Fed says, you know what, I'm going to now buy corporate bonds uh, to sort of help restore this this market. Uh, And, you know, it was enough, uh, interestingly, that the Fed just made this announcement So the Fed made one announcement on March 23rd. Things started to come down, but not enough. And then another announcement in April 9th, and uh, things uh, come down a a lot more. It was enough to make those announcements that the Fed will be there to to buy assets that really helped uh, restore uh, stability to these funds and and to the market. So so you're absolutely right, definitely, uh, for the Fed to sort of say, you know, we are going to buy those bonds, uh, c- certainly, certainly helped. Yeah, yeah. So, so in conclusion, Itai, um, do you see any new policies? Uh, do you have any suggestions to new policies, either in the context of uh, what we talked about in terms of financial uh, market prices and the connection and the feedback mechanism between that and the real decisions? inside companies and um, we talked about a few scenarios where uh, that could have some some adverse effects uh, or in this financial fragility issue that we just talked about. Do you have any 
sort of uh, policy suggestions to make these things better? Yes. Um, you know, let, let me start maybe from the second topic we just talked about, uh, the, the yeah. financial uh, fragility. Um, I, I think, you know, people have to be really cautious uh, going forward, uh, how they analyze these events, what they make of them, uh, and what should be done uh, going forward. In, in the following sense, uh, I, I sort of hear this uh, common uh, uh, claim that, you know, there was uh, a bit of a meltdown uh, in, in the markets in March of 2020, but eventually uh, things got back to, to normal and everything uh, was fine. And even though the economic problems are still very severe, the financial system to a large extent got back to, to itself and we didn't see a major uh, financial crisis. I think we have to be very careful with that because uh, following what I told you a few minutes ago, I think to a large extent, uh, the sort of going back to normal was a result of the Fed uh, being very active uh, and the Fed sort of coming in and rolling out a lot of policies uh, sort of all the playbook of 2008 and 2009 and more, okay? Not just quantitative easing, but we are going to also buy corporate bonds. So the Fed took a really active uh, role here. And I think this uh, was critical uh, for things uh, going back to normal. Uh, so, so I think we really need to, to ask ourselves going forward, to what extent are we going to rely on, on the Fed and on central banks in, in general? Uh, we see uh, a growing uh, tendency to just say, you know, uh, when things uh, get rough, uh, there will be some rescue uh, from uh, from the Fed, from yeah. central banks. And, you know, I wonder, um, there is a price to it at the end of the day. Um, you know, all these assets that they're buying, uh, all the fact that the rates are so low, uh, the fact that they now start uh, venturing into buying other assets that they never did uh, before. All these things can introduce a lot of issues into financial markets. Um, they might uh, encourage market participants to take risks, knowing that they're not going to pay the price uh, at the end of the day. They might distort uh, decision-making. Uh, they might, uh, as a result, hurt the, the allocation of, of capital. So all these things, I think, are things that we, we need to, to think about. And, and what I would say is maybe we should not um, just rely on, on this sort of buyer of last resort and, and so on, but, but rather put some reforms in, in place that uh, will uh, address some of the sources of the problem. For example, when I talk about mutual funds, you know, we should think about the liquidity mismatch, to what extent they should really hold illiquid assets and offer liquidity to their investors. Maybe we should reduce this liquidity mismatch to some extent, either by asking them to hold more liquid assets or by reducing the liquidity that is available to, to investors. I think those things should be on the table and should be discussed uh, going forward. Um, you know, if I take another minute to sort of talk about uh, sort of policy implications from the first topic that we talked about uh, today, uh, the market prices and their effect on uh, real activity. I, I do think that, uh, you know, to sort of be very topical and talk about something that happened recently, 
I do think that this, uh, you know, GameStop AMC uh, episode uh, should uh, raise uh, the the alarm and and you know have uh, policymakers sit down and, and think um, maybe some reforms are are needed. Um, you know, to me, and and you know, we, we had a, I think a good discussion, and you pushed back and said why would that cause uh, distortions in, in capital allocation and so on. To me, the fact that you you have a bunch of traders on Reddit sort of coordinating to inflate uh, the price of the stock and the fact that this then feeds back so quickly into the real economy because now AMC can raise more capital and can get out of bankruptcy. It's very alarming to see the, uh, the uh, sort of chain of events and these fluctuations in the stock market feeding back into capital allocation so quickly. So, so I, I think we need to think uh, what's going on. Uh, you know, um, maybe we need to put some sand in the wheels and uh, you know put some friction in how quickly people are, are trading. Maybe um, uh, you know we need to think about what's going on in those uh, internet forums, uh, the extent to which uh, people communicate there, and um, you know may, maybe some of it can count as market manipulation. Um, I, th- I think a lot of questions need need to be asked, and, and maybe maybe we, we need to think. You know, things have gone a bit too far. We can't uh, really uh, endanger the role of the financial market in, in capital allocation. We need to maintain the credibility of the financial market in in capital allocation. Yeah, of course. You know, the the problem with. Uh, regulation is uh, typically all the unintended effects uh, that it could it could bring. You know, one could argue uh, on the opposite side, uh, Ita. You know, so who who got hurt here? Let's say um, AMC. Um, you know, if um, retail investors um, pumped up AMC stock. And capital providers uh, use that information to fund AMC. Uh, perhaps that is that is a uh, that is a symptom that markets are functioning. <laughs> Could you say that? Um, yes, I, I think that's a fair point. Um, uh, it is a, a symptom that that markets are are functioning. Um, but but of course you, you want to make sure that they are not uh, functioning too much on uh, noise and uh, frenzy and, and fads and, and things like that. Uh, at the end of the day, when it is the allocation of resources in the economy, you know, capital is flowing to one firm and not the other. Those things are being funded. Other things are not being funded. You you want to make sure that the the process uh, sort of rewards the the right kind of, of information and not sort of rumors and and things like that. Right. Excellent. Yeah, this has been great, Itai. Thanks so much for Thank you very much. Uh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. This is a Scientific Sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com.